welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, um, Associate Professor at BYU-Hawaii, Chad Ford. And just by way of introduction, he is calling in from Hawaii. I'm not in Hawaii, and he is not in Utah. He's the director of the university's McKay Center and is known for his study of conflict resolution with an emphasis on large group ethics and religious conflict, as well as for his sports journalism with ESPN. He is an author of the book, Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home and Work and the World. Thanks for being on the podcast, Chad. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Tell us where you're calling in from, what part of Hawaii, and tell us about how long you've been at BYU and how you got to BYU-Hawaii. Yeah, so I am uh, live on the north shore of Hawaii in a, a little town called Pupakea up on the mountain. And I came to BYU-Hawaii as a professor in 2005, and I got my undergraduate degree uh, from BYU-Hawaii. I actually started at BYU went on a two-year uh, mission for the LDS Church in San Bernardino, California, came back to BYU, Hawaii. And, um, and then about 10 years later, after going to graduate school in Washington, D.C., uh, I came back uh, to start this center, the McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding, which has a really unique place in the church's education because BYU, Hawaii, was founded um, by David O. McKay, who was one of the former uh, presidents of, of the church. And it was founded under a, a prophetic vision around this idea that at the end of World War One, uh, at the time as an apostle, uh, David O. McKay went around the world uh, to check in on church members at the in the sort of wake after World War One, and in the process of doing that, he discovered two really two really interesting things. One, the destruction, the massive destruction that was caused by World War One everywhere that he went, but two, all of these really great human beings that he was encountering, and he couldn't he couldn't rectify the two. How could these these great human beings be part of this sort of terrible destruction. And on one of his visits to Laie, Hawaii, where BYU Hawaii is, he had a vision that there should be a school created that brought in people from all over the world, that they would come here to learn uh, things around peace and getting along with each other and diplomacy and what have you. And he really thought that this would be a great solution to what he saw at the end of World War One. It took him until the 1950s when he became the president of the church to actually um, institute uh, BYU, what would become BYU-Hawaii. And in the dedicatory prayer, he said that, you know, from the school would go men and women who would be influences towards the establishment of peace internationally. And really still had this vision 35, 34 years later that this is what the school is going to be about. And so I got the opportunity as uh, to come back to BYU Hawaii and start the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding, really with that focus around fulfilling the school's mission, uh, helping create men and women who would be influences towards the establishment of peace internationally. And we run an academic program. We run a lot of other projects. 
both here in Hawaii locally as well as internationally. Uh, we've trained people in, in mediation and conflict facilitation. And uh, I think it's very unique, uh, at least in the church setting, a program like this uh, that is getting, uh, is thinking about peace building as an LDS faith vocation. That is really cool. I didn't know anything about this, and I'm, probably many of our listeners um, are the same way or learning about um, this for the first time, but many of our listeners may be very aware. Tell our listeners, I assume you teach um, as part of uh, director of the McKay Center. Tell our listeners what kind of classes you teach at BYU-Hawaii. Yeah, so we have an intro class, which we call Intercultural uh, Peace Building, and we really teach the very basics of peace building. One, like what causes conflict between individuals, what causes conflict in communities and then internationally. And then we start thinking about tools that we can use to help ourselves and others resolve those conflicts. And so it's sort of an overview course that, that gets us sort of started thinking about conflict at all those le levels, interpersonal, uh, community, uh, international, and then from there, our courses take uh, a variety of different directions. We have family peace building classes. We have community nonprofit work uh, classes to think about problems in community. We do some international classes thinking about sort of larger scale uh, conflict. I primarily am teaching around those sorts of classes. That was my sort of specialty in grad school was large scale ethnic and religious conflict. But my first job was as a conflict mediator in child custody cases. And wow. So, you know, I have a broad range of experience on things. I teach a mediation class. Um, we think about mediation, not just like between couples, but in larger scale um, sort of conflicts. And we have a very practical element to our classes. So one of our goals is to try to get our students um, not just the sort of theoretical understandings and underpinnings of conflict and what causes it, which is really important, but also practical skills and mediation and facilitation and, and peace research that can actually land them into being able to do something about their education on the ground. And given that BYU-Hawaii is so diverse, we have around 3,000 students from around 88 countries it's really cool to be in this space that's almost like the United Nations where so many of our students come from different contexts and have different issues that they're facing and have different needs and trying to figure out how we're helpful to a broad range of, of individuals and being able to return back to wherever they came from and, and be an influence, like we said, towards peace in their homes. And, you know, for some people, that's, that's not going to be a career. That's just going to be them thinking about how to be a peace builder in their communities and their workplaces and their neighborhoods, uh, in leadership in the church, for example. And then for a, a certain group of our students, we have both a major and a certificate program that will be a career, whether it's in marriage and family therapy, uh, you know, for example, or starting their own nonprofit organization and, and working on issues around human rights or what have you, or working for a state department or the United Nations, or as a, as a community mediator, we have students going in a lot of different directions with that, but you'd be surprised how many of them are actually choosing this as a, as a career. 
And this is something that's like actually really exciting to me because the uh, LDS people have been sort of disproportionately underrepresented in these sorts of fields. And so to have a number of sort of young people moving into that field right now, I, I, it's, it's really exciting to me. It's really interesting. Do you have um, close contact with BYU Provo? Or is anybody at BYU Provo kind of doing the same thing, the Maxwell Institute or other groups? Or is this pretty unique, what you're doing at BYU-Hawaii? It's, it's unique at BYU-Hawaii. There's elements of it. Uh, at, there's a conflict resolution center that Ben Cook runs out of BYU. Um, though it's primarily related to housing conflict at BYU, as well as the, you know, connected to the law school. There um, is actually uh, David Pulsifer, who's a professor at BYU-Idaho, actually came out and embedded with us for a semester about a year and a half ago, and with a desire to create something like this at BYU-Idaho. And so he spent a semester with us, David's written um, quite a bit about LDS attitudes towards war, war and peace. He's kind of a historian, in American studies background. And then he went back and just got approval, I think, for the first uh, peace building, peace and conflict class at BYU-Idaho, which I believe is launching this fall. That's and cool. so that will be the, the first sort of effort in that direction that way. And so... Um, it, you know, all the schools have sort of different missions and different things that they're they're focusing on, and this this one has been primarily unique to BYU Hawaii. But given our mission and our founding, it, it's a sense. perfect fit. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, talk either about I'd love you to talk about this book. Um, the title is, and I have not read your book yet, but the title is is really um, unique: "Dangerous Love: Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home." at work and the world. Just introduce that book to our listeners, why you wrote it and its focus. Yeah, so I've been a conflict mediator at, in addition to being a professor for the last 15 years. And so I've been doing a lot of work both internationally and domestically. And, and then a lot of that sort of filters into my classes that I teach. And it started actually with a number of our students saying, you know, you lecture on all this stuff that's not in the reading based off of your experiences, you know, can, where can we get a copy of that? And, and that started with, okay, I'm going to write down some of this. I'm going to put it together. And then over time, as I realized that I actually think that there's something very unique when I was putting this all together to say about conflict that's been informed by my experience, my education, and, you know, frankly, my faith, that, I wanted to turn this into a full-fledged um, book. And so Barrett Kohler, um, we pitched the book to Barrett Kohler, the publisher out of San Francisco, um, who publishes a lot of books around things like self-help and what have you. And the whole idea was I wanted to be able to empower people that are experiencing conflict, whether it's conflict with a spouse or conflict with a child or with a parent or conflict with someone at school or a friend or in the workplace, or even if they're, engaged in the larger sort of cultural wars and political wars and things that are sort of happening in the U.S., some real tools to be able to transform conflict. And I use that word because, you know, conflict is going to be with us, that that's just part of our life. And that conflict to me doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation. 
conflict can certainly be destructive, and we see lots of evidence of that. We call this the sort of smog view of conflict, but conflict can also be constructive because as different people with different ideas get together and talk with each other and try to collaboratively problem solve together, oftentimes great solutions come to the problems that face us as individuals or organizations or, or the world. And so we, you know, you start with this premise that instead of putting a negative connotation around conflict, that conflict is our inability to collaboratively problem solve, right? That when we're not able to solve a problem together, whether it's a, a parent and a child or, uh, you know, a couple or, you know, two people in the workplace, we start to experience conflict. And when we do, most people, not all, but most people are oriented in a very negative way. Everything that starts to happen afterwards psychologically is pretty predictable. And so the time they get to me, they disconnected from each other emotionally, maybe even physically. Uh, they've built up large uh, bins of justification around sort of blame uh, and feeling hurt. They feel like there's no way forward with this person. Uh, almost all their solutions for the problem have been exhausted to the point that they, they really only see that the, the real solution to the problem is the other person either changing or going away. And, and when that doesn't work, they're just exhausted and it fuels right into that sort of fear of conflict that people have. And it's this idea that if am I'm in conflict, what will happen to me or the relationship? And, and so a lot of my work is actually in helping people, one, overcome their fear of conflict, and then two, helping them overcome their fear of the person that they're in conflict. So the first one's more of a generalized fear. The second one is towards a particular person um, that, I, that I might be in conflict with. And then we start talking about two other big principles in the book. The first one's called turning first. And it's the idea that when you know people come in and talk to me about conflict, the first thing they typically say is, well, if the other person would just do this, this, or this, if they would change, if they would apologize, if they would stop acting this way, then I could interact with them in a better way and everything would be fine. And, and the problem with that is the other person's thinking the same thing, right? Like if you would change, if you would just be more accepting or if you would just be more understanding or whatever, then everything would be fine and it would change. And so if both parties are, are thinking that, neither one changes, right? And then they blame the other side for not changing and this goes on and on. And so we, we have this principle that we call the, the most dangerous move of turning first. And it's, I'm going to be the first one to look inward and look at maybe ways that I might be contributing to the conflict or ways that I'm not seeing the humanity of the person that I'm in conflict with or ways that I may haven't been curious or made assumptions or have said things or done things that might be hurtful. And I'm going to turn towards them in a way that's inviting them to turn. And this approach, while it may sound like, well, that's really common sense, of course we would do that. It's, it's almost never the approach that we actually take in conflict at a time when we're experiencing conflict that we actually need to be deeply connected to the person so that we can work through it and solve it. What actually happens is that we disconnect um, from that person and it actually makes the job of actually finding real solutions happen. So look, I know you work with a lot of young people and talk with a lot of young people on your podcast and you see this happening all the time between parents and children, uh, you know, for example. And, and the moment when they need to deeply see each other's needs, wants and desires and honor those 
and find ways to, to put those together, they're rejected, they pull away, and the further they pull away, the harder and harder it is for them to get back or to see it um, anymore. And um, these are natural reactions. I, you know, I know and sometimes in, in our faith, we tend to sort of think about conflict as being sinful. Yeah. But I think a lot of this stuff is very natural to the way we respond things. I think that the, the sinful thing to me is, is not doing anything about it, um, is, is not um, taking the actions that we need to reconcile. And, and so this book is really a, a, a roadmap with lots of exercises in the book about how I get back to reconciliation. How do I reconcile with someone who has offended me, who has hurt me, who holds different beliefs than I do, um, who I'm frustrated with, um, who I don't feel has seen or treated me the way that I think that they should? How do I get back in reconciliation to them? And, and how do I ultimately collaboratively problem solve with them in a way that allows the relationship to be um, better for, for all of us? And, and the key word in all of that for me is love. And it's a word that a lot of times you won't see in a lot of professional publications. You won't see it a lot sometimes in the conflict literature. But I actually believe that it's the key word to all of this. And it's not easy love. It's not the love that we feel like when someone likes us and they're kind to us and they're nice to us and everything's going great, that, that love is great, but easy love tends to be superficial and it tends to go away when things get hard. And so I'm not talking about romantic love or even the sort of love that actually means like, and they're easy to get along with, or we're, we're super compatible or we share all the same hobbies and beliefs. And so therefore, you know, I love them because of that. It's the sort of love that actually says, I love you because I see you and I see that your needs and wants and desires matter equally to my own and that I'm going to be engaged with you in trying to find solutions that work for both of us, regardless of how hard that is or how frustrating that is. And, uh, you know, to, to quote a sort of love from the scriptures, this is sort of Paul's definition uh, of charity. Um, and this, this idea of agape, or the Greek word of it, uh, which, is, which is a deeper form of love, and, a, and the sort of love that we can cultivate with anyone, including our, our enemies. And so when Jesus says, don't, you know, love your enemies— I don't think he necessarily means feel romantic feelings towards them, nor does I even think that Jesus means that you have to like, like the person or have everything in common with that person or be in a particular relationship with them. But I do think it means love them in a way that I see them the way um, I, I see them purely and I see their needs, wants and desires as valid. And, and I'm committed to helping them in their life journey and, and being part of that. That's what I think um, it means. And that sort of love can change everything. It can change relationships. It can change communities. Um, it, can, it can change the world. As you, um, I wrote down a few notes. That's a great segment, Chad. Um, I wrote down first, um, one needs to look inward. Um, in these conflict situations where we see it's the other person's fault. And 
I know in my own life that is really hard to do. And when I'm focused and aware of perhaps things that other people need to change, and I do recognize that if I'm able to do that, um, which maybe which takes a lot of humility, and I'm not always able to do that, it seems to be able to be helpful, especially if there's common goals, like in a, in a relationship, there's a common goal to come together, and there's a common goal to keep things together where if it's a family relationship, there's a common goal to keep the family circled together, even in these differences. I love that principle of looking inward. Um, I'm also, you sound like Steve Young. Steve Young and I talk a little bit. I'm not trying to name drop, but he's kind of, he talks a lot about the law of love um, in the very same way you talk. And in the forward to this book I wrote, that's coming out next month, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Steve's forward includes this blurb. His, um, this book is consistent with the four pillars of law of love that are near and dear to my heart. These pillars are long-suffering, gentle persuasion, love unfeigned, and meekness. And as I've heard Steve talk in a, pod, in a presentation he gave at BYU in the Management Society, just talked about the law of love and the power of the law of love and how he's had to learn these four pillars, which are central, just like you said, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but often difficult to implement sometimes in these emotionally charged um, situations. So I'll just kind of let you keep sharing your thoughts with our listeners, Chad. Yeah. Well, that's, first of all, that, yeah, I totally agree with what you said there. And, and those four pillars and I'm super excited about your book and, and being able to think about that on the, on the particular issue of uh, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and thinking about how um, you, you love, we love them. And, and again, I think that this definition of love can be really helpful um, in part because we get so dissatisfied. You see this mostly with like couples, like the married, get so dissatisfied when um, you start with this relationship that's like intense attraction, romantic feeling, what have you. And then over time, as some of that naturally starts to fade and our differences start to come to the surface and we start to um, butt heads with each other or we're not aligned on certain things, you hear this line all the time, we fell out of love. And, and while, you know, I'll, I'll take that at, at face value, that, that that can happen if you're referring to romantic love, it's exactly when this other sort of love should, should be and needs to be sort of kicking in. And, and by the way, that's not even, and that's just with our partners, let alone in, in you know, so many other relationships that, that, that we can, you know, have in our life is that, we shouldn't idealize easy love. It's nice when it comes, but it's also superficial because it's, it's loving for the sake of being loved, right? It's easy love. We feel it when other people love us, when other people are helpful to us, when other people see us as people, it's easy to feel love back towards those people. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it, there's, there's a lack of depth. And there's a lack of sustainability because in most relationships, if not all of the relationships in our life, there's, there's going to come a moment when it, that's no longer the case. 
and can our love last beyond beyond that and you know for me this was really apparent in having children you know when your child comes out at first I can't imagine like a pure love that you feel for this, this, this newborn baby. And, and, you know, at first when they're born, you know, we're excited about everything that they do, their first words, their first steps, everything's great. And then the other great thing about, about kids is they, they adore you. They love you back and, and they, they think you're great. But then as they get to be teenagers and they get to have their own thoughts and, and mind of their own and their own desires and things that they want to do that aren't always aligned with, with, with dad or with mom or whoever, your, your relationship gets tested in a completely different way because your children may no longer be easy to you. And certainly their love for you may no longer feel easy. In fact, you may feel like an, you're an obstacle in their, in their way. And, and how do we cultivate instead of anger, blame, escalating conflict, uh, you know, frustration, shaming, all the sort of tools that our culture kind of gives us to, to fight back? How do we instead respond um, with, with love? And, you know, this to me is, in, in my mind, the sort of central teaching of Christianity that, you know, you want to get at the heart of, of what Jesus is thinking about and doing, including the actual atonement itself. And it's showing this sort of love towards, towards everyone. You know, Jesus shows it towards lepers. He shows it towards prostitutes. He shows it towards Romans. He shows it towards Pharisees. He shows it towards his apostles. He uh, has this ability to show this love in all these uh, multi-directional ways. And then in the atonement, he takes upon the sins of the world, all of which I'm pretty clear Jesus doesn't agree that sin is good or right or what have you, but loves us through it anyway. And so, you know, cultivating that love really requires a couple of things because fear is the opposite of love. Right. And so as long as I'm afraid of conflict or I'm afraid of the person I'm in conflict with, feeling those emotions of love become really hard. It, it's, it's just not natural that when we're feeling afraid, we're also feeling love. And I, and I find it really interesting that in multiple times in scriptures, Jesus commands us to not be afraid. And, and if there's one emotion that Jesus doesn't particularly show or that I've seen in any of the scriptures is fear. Um, and, and so how do we let go of that? And, and I think so much of it is that we have to let go of the self-preservation instinct that we have in us that is asking the question, what will happen to us if we do this thing? And instead embrace what I call the us preservation mode, not them preservation. It's not self-preservation versus them. It's the us preservation that asks us what will happen to us if I do not, and recognizing that, that us is holy, in, and, and especially in our faith tradition, the idea of us and being connected and sealed um, through uh, you know, eternity is uh, of the deepest and most importance to us. But often in our decision-making, in our relationships, it's really about self and not about us. And so, you know, I did this, uh, I did this fireside um, recently 
And uh, I've been asked to speak. There have been a number of uh, bullying incidents, fighting, including physical, you know, fist fighting, um, you know, uh, comments that were hurtful to young people or whatever. There's just been a number of incidents in the state. And they asked me, I do a fireside talk about conflict resolution. And, you know, here we are in this, this chapel on a, on a Sunday evening and everybody's singing. Of course, everybody, you know, if, I, if I'm coming to speak, everybody's going to sing, uh, you know, a peace song, like Master of the Tempest is Raging, <laughs> Peace Be Still, or Peace Be Still. And <laughs> it's just like guaranteed, like I know what's going to happen. And, you know, it's really interesting that for many LDS people, especially our conception of peace is an inner peace, right? That we can have peace amongst the storms. And, uh, you know, as Jesus says in John, you know, peace I leave unto you, but not the, not the peace of the world, right, do I give unto you. And this, this idea that inner peace is really important, I think it is. I think it's extremely important. But, you know, then when it comes to peace with others and everything else, even though the scriptures are clear, we get less clear as a culture. And so I, I just ask people to raise their hand. Like, how many of you would feel guilty or feel some trepidation walking into church on Sunday and taking the sacrament if the day before you'd gone to Starbucks and drank a coffee. And, you know, everybody laughed and there's a lot of hands that go off. Or if you had drunk alcohol or if you'd gotten into a makeout session and gone too far with, you know, uh, someone, you know, hands are all up. And I said, how many of you would feel trepidation or any, any sense of remorse or guilt if the day before you'd gotten into a terrible fight with your brother? or with your mom or dad and said things that were hurtful or harmful, or you'd said something to someone at school that really hurt them. Uh, it may be even to the point that it caused suicidal feelings within them. How many of you would be afraid to sort of take the sacrament or feel like I need to come there and talk to the bishop about that or whatever. And there was almost no hands in the audience that were raised. Um, and to me, that's, that's, that's a, that's an alarming alarming trend in a, in a cultural trend, um, right? That, that we, we, we think about our relationship with others as being something where we can be wrong in that and still be right um, with God. But if I drink coffee, I'm wrong with God. Oh. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's... Um, it, it, it's something that's so Im important, I think, to sort of think about. And, and, you know, it's dangerous love because that is what's scary, right? I mean, it's scary to, to engage someone that I disagree with. It's scary. Relationships can be scary. Being vulnerable can be scary. Turning first, maybe they're not going to turn back. Like all of those things can be scary, but it's exactly those sort of actions that heal the breach, um, that repair the wrongs in ways that bring us the greatest love and light and joy in our life. And we, we gotta be talking more about it and, and actually building skill sets around how to do it and not just hope that it will just come to us. That's a pretty powerful segment, Chad. Um, I think about my baptism covenants. That's a vertical line going up to God that includes commandment keeping and my relationship with God. And then the other half of my baptism covenant is horizontal going sideways, my relationship with um, fellow people. 
And I think in my life, I've been out of balance and maybe culturally we're out of balance where we rank not drinking coffee higher than our relationships with our loved ones and how probably at the end of the day, we're going to be judged, you know, on our relationship with loved ones and, and even people that aren't our loved ones, they're in our circle that we may harm with our comments. And I think that's pretty powerful. And I think about Christ and his ministry and the things you're pointing out and how focused he was on relationship with others. Um, in this book I wrote, I even talked about if I hypothesized that if we asked somebody in Christ's day about the word faith, we would get a statement of behavior towards other people versus a statement of belief, which is what faith is now. It's sort of a doctrinal summation of all the things we believe, because so much of what Christ did was teaching us how to relate well to other people. And that's maybe what we would have interpreted faith in his day, more a statement of behavior to other people, and how perhaps we've lost balance um, culturally, not doctrinally, but culturally on what's important and the harm we can do to people that we may not think affects our relationship with Heavenly Father and our road back to heaven. That's pretty powerful um, and pretty insightful. So just keep sharing with our listeners. You know, this is, I, I think that's a great, you know, a great point. And it's, it's, you know, it's so interesting to me that when you dig beneath the surface of almost every conflict, almost everyone, it comes down to relationship. Even I've been working for years in the Middle East with Israelis and Palestinians. Wow. And, you know, you can recite endlessly the political issues and of land and, and, and control and power and economics and everything that comes down. But when you're actually in the room mediating with them, it comes down to relationships and how people are or aren't seen. And when we see people as objects, in other words, when their needs and wants and desires don't matter to me as much as my own matter to me. And, and I think this can even be true around putting principles above people, right? Like I'm going to say that this principle allows me to not see the humanity or be alive to the humanity or love someone because of the principle we disconnect in the most serious way uh, from people because the underlying principle, the ultimate principle is about connection. It is ultimately about, about that love. So there's no principle, but I think we do it all the time. Uh, I do it all the time. I remember, I, I, you know, I remember one time, you know, I was raised um, to be on time. That was something culturally that, my parents and my grandparents told me it's very, very important, uh, you know, cultural norm. And, um, and I, I was pretty adamant about it. You know, then I got married and my wife came with a very different cultural norm. On time was not important. In fact, there was almost some sort of virtue in being 15 to 20 minutes late to thing. And, and, it, and it caused, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a bit of conflict within us, uh, you know, over time. And then, and then one day I just had had it because we'd been late to church like multiple times. And I, th I thought I had my argument and my argument was, look, we can be late to social events and other things like that, but we can't be late to church. 
And so here's what's going to happen. Next Sunday, we are going to be on time no matter what. The car is going to pull out at 1045. If you are not in the car, you get left behind. Um, and, and we're going to be there on time. And the reminders all week and put something on the re, you know, refrigerator. And I, I actually helped getting the kids ready more than I typically would do on a Sunday. You know, everything else, get everybody whining and crying into the car. It's 1040. Tell my spouse, hey, you know, um, we're, we're, we're getting in the car. Get everybody in the car. Just remember five more minutes. 1043, horn honk. 10.44, longer horn cock. And at 10.45, I pulled out of the garage and I left it. And my kids are screaming in the car, what are you doing, Dad? Why would you leave Mom? And, you know, everybody's really upset. Everybody gets to church. We're all upset. We're all crying. The opening hymn's going on. I'm not even listening to the hymn anymore because I'm still upset about what's happening. I'm still trying to justify what I just done. And we're taking the sacrament now, and I'm reading scriptures trying to, I'm sure there's scriptures in here that say being on time is the most important <laughs> of any, any, anything that's there. I'm, I'm, I'm looking through all this and, and realizing that, that what I had just done, actually, if I was really being honest with myself, had actually disqualified me from actually taking that sacrament, that I was so intent on being on time for. And, uh, you know, and I, and I had to repent. I had to actually get up, get back in the car, go find her, bless her heart. She was walking, you know, on her, you know, on her, on her way to church. And, you know, we had sort of a long talk about it. But, you know, your principle can be right. Like, it might be important to be on time for something. But it's never more important than the person or the relationship that, 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 that you're in. And, and we can have constructive, and we did ultimately have constructive, collaborative problem solving about how to sort of solve that issue. But I can't have it when I'm mistreating someone else. And, and I, I think that this actually requires skills. It requires um, intentionality in the way that we have in relationships. And then getting back to that sort of easy easy love thing, I think we just want our relationships to come natural and just not have any problems. And when they do have problems, we think something's wrong. Instead of being intentional about helping things go right and having the tools and equipping ourselves with the tools for when things don't go right, how do I help them get back to going right again? And there's so much pain. And I, I know you know this, and I know so many young people have been you know, talking to you, writing into you, there's so much pain. I'm, I'm overwhelmed at it. When I walk into a room, how many people in that room are hurting because there's a relationship that has gone, that has gone wrong. Um, they don't feel loved or they don't feel seen or they don't feel accepted. Um, and, and, you know, here's the thing that kills me the most that, that you know, someone of faith, because we don't get to interact with our heavenly parents, I think we model our view of our heavenly parents a lot on what we see from our own, right? Um, and, and, the, and the relationship that they show towards me is sort of how I start to visualize what that, that other relationship looks like. And so when that's not going right, it's almost inevitable that the next step that's going to come is that um, 
I also don't feel seen or loved or heard or um, accepted by my heavenly parents. And that's a very dark place, um, especially if you're someone of faith. Um, but I think all the time as a parent, what a responsibility I have um, to my kids um, to model, and I do it super imperfectly, but to try to model what that relationship would look like um, for them so that their faith is strengthened and not, and not, not, not destroyed. And there, you know, there's a line in the scriptures where Jesus is in a row with the Pharisees in Matthew um, 23, and he's sort of laying out his issues with the Pharisees. And, and one of them is that one of the things that Jesus says is that, that the, the actions of the Pharisees actually create distance between people and God. That actually, that actually the way they were going about living their faith was actually causing people to misunderstand. They were misrepresenting God to these people. And I, I don't think anything made Jesus angrier than that. Um, but here you have this loving, you know, Father in heaven, but that you're misrepresenting them as something else. And, you know, and I, say, I think about this all the time that... Um, and one of the reasons that I got involved with this, because I actually think our, my faith has a lot of really great tools at our disposal in our scriptures and our doctrine and our teaching that we could be the leaders in the world in, in teaching reconciliation. Um, we have such beautiful ideas of a, of a heavenly family and of being brothers and sisters. And that all of us coming through this life would experience it, that to experience life, that all of us have this sort of singular goal of, of getting back to, um, to, to that heavenly place that we all in, in our state see this deep potential that each person has, even this godlike potential that every soul sort of has, um, you know, contrary to some, you know, other beliefs or whatever, we we don't see a degraded human soul. We see something divine uh, in, in, in other people. We have these incredible resources, um, including what I think is the greatest anti-conflict, anti-war book that may exist, the Book of Mormon, that, that actually shows what happens when we separate into ites, when we disconnect from each other, the predictable patterns and cycles of justification and and conflict escalation and everything that will in, ensue, the way that that sort of conflict erodes and tears away our faith and hardens our hearts towards each other. And the book ends with the complete genocide of a people. And, and, and one person alone walking with these plates as a warning um, to us um, you know, we have, we have these rich resources. We have the Doctrine and Covenants and, and, and instructions to Joseph Smith about sort of how to handle conflict in Missouri. We have a beautiful revelation that comes in the Liberty Jail uh, to Joseph Smith about how to sort of handle, um, you know, conflict. Like we have all of, this, all of these resources, uh, you know, available to us. And, and, you know, how do we embrace them? and use them to better our own relationships, our relationships in our communities and our wards, and, and, and certainly 
you know, something that I'm interested in is also to the extent possible, you know, sharing those concepts with the world. Um, and so there's so much good that, that we can be and do um, around these issues, but we struggle. And, and, and I'll be the first to raise my hand and say that I've had serious conflicts in my life and I've had serious um, failures on my part, even when I knew this stuff and even when I, you know, taught it, that I struggled um, with it. And, um, and, you know, all you can do in those cases is, is learn and try to be better. And, um, but for us, I think um, the first step is that I want to get better. And I, I see the importance of this and I see, see it not just for my faith, but for my relationships. And I want to put in the effort for the work and, and learning how to get better. And, and the truth is I've, I've taught thousands and thousands of people. I've worked with people that people would consider terrorists. I've worked in high conflict, violent conflict areas. I've worked in families. I've worked with divorcing couples. I've worked with polarized communities on some of these major issues that exist right now in the United States today. And despite all the negative press about how disturbing it is and how hard it is and how polarized it is, I, I still have hope. I actually think that we can do this. And it's just going to take intentionality on our part to start the process to turn first and to not wait for someone else to do it. So, you know, if you're estranged from a child right now, don't wait for them to pick up the phone and, and to turn towards you. Don't wait until they change their lifestyle or, or believe everything that you believe to reconnect as a person like that's on us to do uh, now. If you're struggling with a parent right now, don't wait for them to call and apologize or admit everything is wrong. Like work, work, work at seeing them and their humanity and, and the things that you do agree on and the things that are important to them and, and invite that space and good things, good things come. I'm just so touched by everything you're sharing. Um, I love your invitation on these broken relationships to not wait. Um, I'm reminded of, that made me think of the Home Alone movie where I can't remember the, his name anymore, but he's talking to this neighbor grandfather that's estranged from his son and in the Home Alone kid's mind at age eight or whatever it is, he can't quite, he makes it so simple for that grandpa to reconnect with his son and his grandchildren. And and he watches out the window, still Home Alone, I think, as that grand, as that son comes home and, and is reunited with his father. And it just took what you said. And I think we want to heal his relationships, but we kind of get in our camp and get in our cycle and and rightly so, look at the other person, what they've done to harm us. But it does, it's the law of love. If we own the doctrine that we teach and believe in, then we have the framework to, to do our best to heal these relationships. And I love you pointing to our doctrine, Chad, as a, as a framework for this. And even heavenly parents that love us, when I meet with LGBTQ people that feel pretty bad about how they're created, one of the first things I try to do is help them to see themselves as divine children of heavenly parents that are created the way they're supposed to be created in their image and likeness and that no one should look at themselves and, and 
feel how they're created as a mistake and, and our doctrine that we should, that we're creating with heavenly parents that love us as their spirit children is powerful. And it is a way to help us make better decisions. Um, I'm just looking at some notes here from some presentations I've given. You remind me of Elder Uchtdorf, and I'm, I'm going to read just a few lines from his April 27 conference talk. Um, Fear rarely has the power to change our hearts, and it will never transform us into people who love what is right and want to obey Heavenly Father. One of the ways Satan wants to manipulate others is by dwelling on and even accelerating the evil in the world. Never look down on any other religion or group of people. I don't believe God wants his children to be fearful or dwell on the evils of the world. And you kind of talk like Elder Uchtdorf, um, Chad, in the sense I think you're trying to take these words that are part of your book title, Fear and Conflict, and talk about the law of love, or I love your term, dangerous love, to help us work through those. Because I think if we really own the doctrine of our church and of what Christ taught, we should we should have less fear than perhaps any other people on the earth because of our framework, if we really own that framework. Any thoughts on any of that? Or just keep sharing your thoughts. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that that talk by Elder Uchtdorf. Um, and, and that's why, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. It's not a doctrinal problem. It's, it, it's, it's a cultural problem and we live in a culture and I'm not just talking about LDS culture, but we live in a culture right now where fear is prevalent, where everything is put in divisive terms black and white. Uh, and, Everything that we we consume right now feels like we're in this where you're either with us or you're against us. And that this sort of group psychology that exacerbates fear and conflict is is certainly something that you know we're not immune to. Uh, you read you read the scriptures and the Doctrine and Covenants, early Latter-day Saints weren't immune to this. Um, you know, Joseph, Joseph Smith is going to get a revelation in section 98 that is actually going to chastise him a little bit on this and actually sort of teach him sort of about this approach. And so, you know, one of the things that I, that I hear all the time about this is people say, you know, fair enough, but there are bad people in the world. Or, you know, this belief is abhorrent to me that this person holds or this practice or this behavior is sinful. And because it is, you know, I can't associate myself with that anymore. And, and I have to fight against it, right? Um, all it takes is for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. And, you know, when I hear all that, I, I, I think the first thing I think to myself is how, you know, one of the reasons that we think about love your enemy and how hard it is, is because I think as long as I'm thinking of someone as my enemy, it's almost impossible to feel love, right? And so I actually think the first step in loving our enemies is to quit thinking about people as our enemies and start thinking about them as our brothers and sisters. And, and when we have that mental shift, it doesn't mean that we'll agree. It doesn't mean that we might not hold even polar opposite views, but there's a level of respect and understanding. And I think this is a key word for me in conflict 
which is humility com- uh, connected to curiosity. I'm humble in my truth. I, I hold dear the things that I believe, but I recognize that I don't know everything and, and that there's things that, that in fact I might learn and continue to grow and might even change. And I'm curious when someone else holds a different belief than me about why that is so and why they feel the way that they feel and what in their background or their, their experiences or what have you have led them to, to hold something different from me. We're not curious about our enemies and we're typically not humble about our enemies. We're very sure who's right and who's wrong. And, and that surety comes and interestingly, to me, it makes us dumb. It makes us stupid. We do and say stupid things because we're, we're not thinking at the right level about things. We, we simplify things to the point that they become, uh, they become clear in our minds when they're certainly not clear uh, you know, on the ground. And unfortunately, social media especially simplifies so much of this into a meme or a 140-word tweet or 140 character tweet or what have you that doesn't actually allow us to do those sorts of two things that I think are, are critical to transforming conflict that we're humble in, in our truth and our beliefs. And we're curious about others and, and why they think and do that. And instead we live in this assumptive world. And so when you, you know, people say, well, what if they're a bad man? What if they're a bad person? In fact, my book actually literally starts with the quote chapter one, but what if he's a bad man? It was a workshop that I was doing with this young woman named Miriam who had a conflict with this man in her village uh, in the Middle East. And she literally came with that. Well, what if they're a bad man? And I start the book that way because that's quickly where we go to in conflict. We identify the thing that's wrong. We attach it to the person and they become the thing that is wrong. Their behavior becomes their essence of who they are. And then I have justification in my mind to separate, to disconnect, uh, you know, from that person. And, and when, and when that happens, I can feel right. I can feel holy. I can feel justified and I couldn't be more wrong. And, and, and so, you know, you start, I think with that premise, if you're, if you're feeling right now and you're listening to all this, this is all great. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I should love everybody. And I know that relationships are really important, but you don't know my partner the way that I do, or you don't know my son or daughter and what they're up, up against, or, you know, you don't understand how my parents parented me in the past, or you don't understand this. Um, I may not, I, I haven't lived every experience, um, and, and so I, I can't I can't tell you that. But I've had that feeling many times that I'm excused from showing love towards another because of their actions, their behaviors, their beliefs, and that I can feel good or right or justified um, and be absolutely far from it. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I would just, I would just ask us all, if we're sitting here listening to all this today, that we're coming up with a reason or, or something that makes it okay for us to, to let go of that thing and continue to focus on the person, um, continue to remember that they were, um, 
So we didn't always see them that way. And if we have to go all the way back before the, before the veil and say, well, I know I didn't see them that way, <laughs> you know, in the pre-mortal existence, then, then we go there. And, and, and we start to understand that all of us are engaged in this, this mortal experience. All of us are making mistakes. All of us are a little lost in the process. All of us, our souls are yearning for something that that's really hard to get here. And so if we stumble and we make mistakes along the way, um, that we understand that because we do that too. It's in fact, why Christ is central to, to our faith and our gospel, because our, our loving heavenly parents knew that too. And, and if, if he can find the energy and to, the mustard to love us, then if we're going to be his disciples, that's, that's what, um, that's what we need to now. And that's why to me, those, those verses in John, when Jesus is in um, the upper room and he's preparing to go to Gethsemane and he's giving those last instructions to his disciples, to me are the single most powerful in all scriptures because the, the disciples, if you remember at the start of the story, they're bickering about who should sit where and they're, you know, they're having all these sort of internal disagreements and here's Christ who spent three years with him about ready to leave his mortal ministry. And yet the 12 people closest to him are fighting. And as he says multiple times, a new commandment I give unto you, as I have loved you, love one another. By this shall men know that you are my disciples. To me, he's distilling everything down into the simplest of terms for them. Like if you can remember one thing. If there's only one thing you're going to take of it, there's one moniker that will show people that you're my disciples. It's this, as I have loved you. And Jesus' love is not easy love. It's, it's the dangerous love. That's, that's what it is. And so um, by this shall men know, and women know that you're my disciples, when we show dangerous love um, towards everyone, including, including our enemies, uh, towards everyone, including the people that hurt us, um, towards everyone, including um, sinners. And um, and I, it, I, I know it's hard. That's why it's called dangerous love. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. And I also just want to add one last little caveat in all of this, because I do sometimes have people that are deeply desirous, but they're in abusive relationships. And they hear all of this and they say, okay, I should stay in my abusive relationship. I should continue to be abused. I should love them through the abuse. That's not what I'm saying. Dangerous love doesn't mean literal dangerous. Like if you're in danger emotionally or physically, if your partner or someone is abusing you or hurting you, I'm not suggesting that you need to stay and take that abuse, that, that to love them this way requires you to, to continue to suffer abuse. Not saying that at all. In fact, my advice to you would be the same that I would give to my children, which is get out of that, get out of that space. Um, and, but, but what I would even say in those spaces, there's a way to get out of that space to remove ourselves from those, those bad situations and actually still feel and show love towards the person, even though we might have to dramatically change the nature of that relationship, even if we have to draw firm boundaries that, that keep us um, from having the same sort of interactions that they may want, or that ultimately we may have desired had things been differently. 
there's still a way to sort of show love and connection with boundaries and keeping ourselves physically safe. And I, and I know probably you have some listeners, unfortunately, that are in situations like that. And so I do just want to clarify that I don't want them to take away from this whole thing right now that I have to continue to take um, or put myself back in an abusive relationship because that, you know, unfortunately, um, that can heal, um, but it probably will never heal as long as that person continues to abuse and as long as you continue to take that abuse. I love that. And I'm thinking of Steve Young's um, BYU management because he talked a lot about just the things you're talking about. It's interesting. Both of you come from a little bit back, a different background um, to get to the same spot, but it's it's because you both understand the doctrine of Christ. And he does then make that boundary the same way you do, as if you're in a toxic relationship, um, the likely the only way to heal from that is to end that toxic relationship. There's so many thoughts come to my mind I as you talk, um, Chad. One is this idea of being curious. Um, humility equals curiosity. And I that's my 87-year-old mother at her age is still curious. And it's just, I don't know if that's something she's learned or if that's the way she's wired, but um, she's a faithful member of our church, but and, and she's very curious about just how other people believe, feel, their lived experience, and I've always admired that about her. I've also um, loved this idea, I call it a false dichotomy that we set up in our minds sometimes, that to fully love and follow God, we have to stop loving some of his children. And I, th- I just think everything you're teaching us here eliminates this sort of false dichotomy that sometimes we create in our minds or culturally we've created that is not there. And I wrote down these words from the scripture, perfect love casteth out fear. And I've certainly felt less fear in my life as I've connected with more marginalized groups, mm. the groups that kind of have always, I've taught to been afraid of like LGBTQ or um, black teenagers or undocumented workers or just different groups that I haven't always heard kind things about that have created some fear. But as I've sort of done Brene Brown, it's hard to hate, you know, it's move in. It's hard to hate, move in. It's not quite her quote. I'm paraphrasing. And as you hear stories of people that maybe you're taught you shouldn't listen to, I don't want to make that completely true. This is sex traffickers. I'm not looking to develop any empathy for them by hearing their stories, but certainly there's groups of peoples that I want. I'm just, there's a quote here that I sometimes share from Brene Brown. It's this common enemy intimacy idea. Common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is intense, immediately gratifying, an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. It is not, however, fuel for real connection. And I look at that, and I look at, you know, I identify with one political party, but if if my identification with that political party mostly identifies just that I hate the other group and I'm just looking for reasons to hate them and creating connection or in my own faith, if I connect in my faith because I go to my faith and want to hear how bad the other faiths are, or how I'm under attack, I do create a connection with other people. But I think for me, it's based on fear. 
And it just leads right. to my emotional health declining because I'm just full of fear and we're under attack. And these are the last days, which is true. It's the last days and the world's going downhill. But for me, that narrative leads to more anxiety and stress. And I just don't think it's consistent with what Christ taught and what you're teaching. So those are some of my thoughts yeah. that come to my mind as, as you're sharing with our listeners. So I'll turn it back to you. We, we did some interesting research at, at um, BYU-Hawaii in developing a scale that looked at, you know, four areas of peace and, and attitudes towards them. One is inner peace, like just that, that peace that I feel inwardly, you know, through prayer, through developing my own sort of spirituality, peace with others. Um, social peace, which sometimes is referred to social justice, but looking at marginalized people and other people in the world and are we creating communities and societies that care for the poor and the afflicted and the marginalized with the scriptures are full of commandments for us to do so. And then this, this term eschatological peace, which is um, thinking about sort of end times peace. You know, we, as Latter-day Saints have an eschatology around that at some point the world will end at second coming and things will, you know, sort of dramatically change. And, and while not with everybody, but for many Latter-day Saints, part of that narrative is that peace comes, that when Christ comes, he brings peace, you know, to the world. And, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, interesting as we've done research with different groups, how, how Latter-day Saints really resonate with that inner peace narrative. Um, they also can resonate to a certain extent with a sort of eschatological doomsday end of times, like the world is going to become increasingly wicked and then eventually, you know, a savior will come and, and sort of save us from that and the wicked will all be burned and, you know, all the, all the good people will, you know, then be able to live in peace. And how challenging the narratives of peace with others and, you know, so, sort of social peace are for many Latter-day Saints. Um, they tend to not identify with those terms as not enough. But we also have this eschatology in our Church of Zion and this idea of building Zion. And, you know, to me, there's a, there's a story that's really unique to LDS, um, LDS theology in my mind in the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price. And I've actually shared this with a lot of people who are, you know, not LDS, because I, I think there's something really cool in the in, in in the in the story. If you remember the story of Enoch, he's a uh, things are very wicked. Um, there's all sorts of bad things happening, um, and and it, it's it, it actually is to the point that at one point, and I think this is like really powerful. It tells us something about. Um, about our heavenly father that the the scriptures say that God actually weeps, um, you know, in there and weeps over, over his children. And, and so you've got this, you've got this, um, you've got this uh, issue that's going on. It says at one point that, that they, that one of the things that God weeps is that they hate their own blood. And, and so in this sort of environment, a young Enoch gets called, and Enoch's reaction is really interesting. It's called to kind of go preach repentance to the people. And I think a lot of times we frame repentance as, you know, woe unto you, and you're terrible, and you're going to burn, or what have you. But I, 
I always see repentance truly in, in many forms in the scriptures as being loving, uh, as, as being a call to return, you know, back to God, as a call to return back to some sort of fellowship with each other and God. But Enoch's response is, I'm young, I'm, I'm a lad, I'm slow of speech, the people hate me, there's not going to be, I'm not going to be able to do anything. And then, and then God sort of makes this promise, like, Enoch, open your mouth and I'll fill it. Go forth and I'll give you the words to say. If mountains get in your way, keep marching and I'll split the mountains. And you and I are going to partner on this together. And, and then something really incredible happens in the scriptures. It's the first time it happens on this earth. It, later, Enoch creates Zion, and it's described in, in those verses as a place where people are of one heart and one mind, uh, right? Um, that they're dwelling in righteousness, and that there's no poor among them, uh, is, is, is the phrase of, uh, of uh, a paraphrase of the scripture of what's happening in Zion. And in those, in those spaces, you know, think about that. They're one heart and one mind. Um, they are dwelling together in righteousness, and you know, righteousness is is being right with each other and being right with God. And there's no poor among them. They, they tick off everything from the inner peace to the peace with others to the social sort of peace. And then something really interesting happens there. The the city becomes so righteous that eventually it gets like taken up off the earth. Right? That there's that this violent community where people hated each other and hated their own blood, um, changes. And, and Enoch does it sort of in partnership. And, and it's always been to me a um, call, if you will, that we can't just look at the world and say, the world is just getting increasingly bad. There's nothing I can do about it. It's too bad for everybody else. Just take care of myself and everything's good that um, we are continued to be called to build Zion. And that if we had the faith of Enoch, and if we had the, the ideas about what that actually looks like and what that actually means to build Zion, that, that we're one heart and one mind, that we're going to live in right with each other and God, and that we're going to take care of eradicating any of the sort of social injustices on the ground that are hurtful to people and then they cause their faith to falter, or just cause hurt or pain or sorrow or what have you, um, we can live in, in, in spaces like this. And so I, you know, I'm one of these Latter-day Saints that's very hopeful. People ask me all the time, like I'm going to, I'm not joking. Like I go to the grocery store and I'm like, why are you working in the Middle East? Don't you know what's going to happen at the end of the day? And don't you just know that those people, they're never going to get along. It's just going to get worse and worse. And, and, you know, my only reaction to that is I get that you see that from the news and everything else, but my experience working on the ground for 15 years is that people can change. That's cool. And, and change in powerful and dramatic ways. And that in the hardest and most difficult of circumstances, they're changing in power and in ways that, that really are creating peace on the ground. And if they can do it, What's our excuse, you know, here? And, and, you know, and so this whole thing, what if they're bad? Or what if, you know, what if the world's just gotten too wicked or whatever? I, I, it's such a self-defeating uh, idea um, that can keep us from being and doing good in the world. 
And I think there's so much good for us to do. And, and so much of it doesn't actually have to do with politics as much as it has to do with our relationship um, with people. And when we get that right, my experience over and over again is that other stuff starts to take care of itself. That, you know, any social system that is unjust is created by people that are seeing other people as objects. And so when they turn their hearts, they dismantle those systems and create something that represents their newfound belief in the humanity of others. And so instead of looking at all these institutions and saying it's impossible, I, I look at them and say, you, you, you make those changes one by one. And that those people who influence, um, who have powerful influence will make those changes. And that's why my favorite scripture in the Book of Mormon is by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And you want to change the world. Um, it starts in your home. It starts in your community. It starts in your relationships. And as trite as that sounds, I've seen it over and over again have powerful effects on communities and even countries. This is a really good podcast. It, um, I think we're kind of at the end. Um, I just want to give a wrap-up comment and then turn it back to you, Chad, for any comments. I'm grateful for Bailey Rasmussen, who DM'd me on Twitter, our common friend, and um, set up this podcast and connected us. Um, you joined th three other BYU professors that have been on the podcast. If our listeners want to listen to Spencer Fluman, he's episode 65. Eric Huntsman is episode 70. And Curtis Anderson um, is episode 236. This will be episode 300-something. Um, there's just so many great nuggets. I love the way you make this so doable, Chad. I love um, what they accomplish in the city of Enoch. And one heart and one mind, no poor among us. I think of that symbolically representing today, no marginalized among us. Um, and that that's doable. And I love your formula for doing it. And I love that if you've seen the most complicated issue that I know is the Middle East, and if you've been in that issue for 15 years, um, feet on the ground, and you have hope, and you think that's solvable, and you still have hope for our world and, and have this kind of positive feeling about you, then I think that gives all of us hope. Um, but it's also a a sustainable hope and an actionable hope because we just start in our own homes, in our own circle of influence. And so I encourage all of our, our listeners to check out Chad's book, Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home and at Work and the World. And um, I'll turn it back to you. Just tell our listeners a couple of things. Any other closing thoughts plus where to get your book and if people want to follow you on Twitter or any other how to connect with you if they want to kind of keep up with your message. Well, I, I just want to thank you for this conversation and the work that you're doing um, as well. One of the reasons I, I wanted to be on the podcast when Bailey told me is I see your work ministering um, to the LGBTQ community as exactly this sort of work is exactly the sort of thing of dangerous love. And I, I followed you on Twitter and I see I see you trying to create space. Um, I see you trying to create space for people's pain as well as pointing them in a direction that, that can be healing uh, and, and to create connection. And Thank I you. think you're... that the work that you're doing is really holy. Thank you, and, Chad. It means a lot. Um, it's, it, 
it's the sort of stuff that I just know we have within us as Latter-day Saints. Like I, we all can be engaged in these sorts of work. It doesn't always have to be on the same topic um, because there's lots of marginalized groups and there's lots of people that are hurting and there's lots of pain out there. But to be engaged in this um, is so much, so much holier than tearing down, the, uh, uh, ridiculing, um, being angry, um, and, and, and pointing at the world or our enemies or whoever they are, uh, and, and not turning our cheeks. And so um, I, I hope that people want to know what thing to do is look at look at your ministry and look at how you're ministering to people and, and think about who are those people in my life that I could, um, that I could minister to. And I hope my book is helpful. You can get it at, um, if you go to dangerouslovebook.com, uh, we'll have links to it where you can get it anywhere, but it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and wherever you get books, it's available in uh, digital copy, hard copy. I read the audio book. Um, so it's there. Also at dangerouslovebook.com, we have a Dangerous Love podcast where we're talking about particular issues. We have everything from parenting to marriage to um, to social events, to Black Lives Matter, and you you name it. We yeah. had you know people on sort of thinking about how this fits in particular context there, and um, and I just think you know most and and then you can find us on on Facebook and Instagram and um, what have you as well. But I I just you know, that, that all matters, but to me, what really matters is even if you don't do any of that, you don't pick up the book or, or, you know, whatever, um, that if you could walk away from this podcast, just thinking about one person that I want to improve my relationship with and that I'm going to put aside my fear and I'm going to love them dangerously uh, today. And I'm going to turn towards them, not with blame or not seeking them necessarily to turn back towards me. I'm just going to do it because it's the right thing to do because I seek and desire that connection. Uh, I I can really promise you that that something good will come of that effort. They may not turn back right away. They may may not respond the way that you want to, but you're starting the process of helping things go right. And in many cases, the reaction will be immediate. And so um, I hope as you press stop on this podcast today that your next move is a text or a phone call or a visit um, to someone um, that you need to love. And uh, if that happens, awesome. That is great. Thank you, Chad Ford. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. 